what were you thinking when we were reading this part of the Bible? Apart from probably that it was rather long. Were you thinking about the relevance of this story today? Because it plays out, obviously, in a time long ago and in a country far away and in a culture entirely different from ours. This was the time of the absolute monarchs. Kings decided life and death. And it is an area, the Middle East, of cruelty where they lived and died by the sword, as may be still today. And what is the relevance today? Because if you read about the Falia, well, the Queen Mother, when she was still alive, was not very likely to murder her grandchildren, wasn't she? And Prince Charles, when he becomes king, is very unlikely to kill his brothers. So what are we supposed to do with this story. Or maybe were you looking for some edification in this story? But then on the face of it, there isn't much edifying in it, is there? It's a rather unwholesome story. The BBC made a television series some time ago out of a book by Robert Graves called I, Claudius, And in that TV series, you see the emperors, Tiberius, Caligula, and Nero. And you see the intrigues, the murders, the lust, and the quest for power. And that series was rated 15. Now, this story might be rated worse if it was turned into a TV series. And if it was made into a computer game... I'm sure you wouldn't be very keen to have your children play with it. Or maybe were you wondering about why I selected this text? Because this type of story we sort of normally only stumble upon when you are reading through the Bible. And when we were reading it, we may well be sort of mentally nodding off. You know, there is another bad king. Uh, They have all very similar names. There are two Ahasias, there are two Jehorams, there is a Joram, there is a Joash, there is a Jehoahash and a Jehoash. More kings, more murders. It all becomes a bit of a blur. But the question why I selected this is the wrong question, because that's not important. The question is why is it in the Bible preserved for us? Because we confess that the Bible is inspired from beginning till end. And we confess with Peter in 2 Peter 1 verse 11 that man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is God-breathed. Also, this story by the chronicler. So the question really is, what is it that God gives us in this story today? And I would like to summarize God's message in the story of Joash's life that it is for you to remember and rejoice. God's message in the story of Joash's life is to remember and to rejoice. And we know two things. 
First, we should remember God's warning to us. But then also we should rejoice in God's encouragement for us. And to understand these two points, we first have to look at Joash's life. And secondly, and that's why our reading was somewhat long, the context of Joash's life. So first then, the God's warning in the story of Joash's life. If you reflect on Joash's life, you can sort of see that it progressed through four phases. First, there was his miraculous saving, and then there was his precious upbringing. And then there is his miserable adulthood. And finally, there is his terrible end. First, there is this miraculous saving that we read about. Because if you think about it, God must have given great courage to the priest Jehoiada and his wife Jehoshiba. And God, in that, gave a great blessing to Joash. Because this all played out in the time of a terrible and bloodthirsty woman, a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Now that was a truly unholy alliance. Ahab was a king of Israel who did not serve the Lord, and Jezebel was from that pagan area along the coast. And their daughter, Aphalia, is a real bad chip of these two bad blocks. And for seven years, Joash is kept hidden. And what a danger and what a tension that must have brought with it. Because he was kept hidden in the temple, which was actually next door to the palace, where Aphalia was sitting. And yet Jehoiada and his wife, they persevered. They took this risk, but they persisted. It was a great blessing for Joash. And there it didn't stop. Because secondly, we see in his life the phase of a precious upbringing. 22 verse 12, he was brought up in the temple with the priest Jehoiada and his wife. Chapter 23, verse 11, he was presented with a copy of the covenant, presumably the Pentateuch with the law. And 24, verse 1, we read as a result that he did what was right all the days of Jehoiada. And in 24, verse 4, he even decided to restore the temple. So I think it's safe to assume that Jehoiada and his wife explained God's election of Israel to him. And that they explained to him the role of the temple as the place of worship and God's rest and presence in their midst. And that they explained to him God's promise to David, which was the Messiah who would come. There are a few but important details in these verses. So I think it's safe to conclude that he was brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. 
And they shared with him and tried to instill in him the values of faith. The story of Israel's election, it being a holy nation, of the relevance of the temple representing God's presence, and the promise to Abraham and to David that the Messiah would come. And that they explained to him the joys and the benefits of living close to God. And then for a while, everything appears to be in an upswing. Because after Jehoram and Ahaziah and Aphaliah, now in 24 verse 2, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He rebuilt the temple, the maintenance of which was a task of the kings. Like his grandfather, as it described in chapter 20 verse 32, so yes, God's offer of grace was, ex- was extended to Joash to the fullest extent. But then our narrative tells us that there is a turn for the worse. Because we see in the third place that there was a miserable adulthood. Because after Jehoiada dies, 130 years old, Israel pays him tribute to the old prophet and they bury him in the tombs of the kings. But the king himself does not persevere. And the godliness shown before in rebuilding the temple and eliminating the Asherah poles and doing what is right, it turns out that that godliness was not his own. The old advisors we read are coming back. The temple is abandoned. The Asherah poles return. And God's warnings are ignored. And he was finally warned by Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, as we read in chapter 24, verse 20. But even this Zechariah was murdered, stoned in the temple courtyard. And then by the dying Zechariah, the judgment is announced. May the Lord see this and call you to account. Because yes, the blood and the suffering of his children is precious in the Lord's eyes. And then we read that the judgment is coming, fast and furious. And it certainly did come to Jaws. What a disappointment and what a waste. But then there is in the last phase his terrible end. There is defeat, death, and a bad burial. Because within a year after him killing Zechariah, his own end comes, always certain, always too fast. And his end is sad, as we read. A few Arameans... It's not a big army, there is no heroic fight, there is no glorious battle, it's just an ominous defeat at the hand of a few. Better at the Lord's hand. And thereafter he's murdered in his bed by two people of mixed descent, most likely outcasts at the time. And so it goes from sad to bad, and the final verdict is he is not buried in the tombs of the kings. Because unlike Jehoshaphat, but like his grandfather and his father Jehoram and Ahaziah, he did not serve the Lord. 
and he is skipped in the genealogy of Matthew, and it is a terrible end indeed. So do you hear and see God's warning in Joash's wasted life? Because Joash no doubt was circumcised and received the sign of the seal of God's promise in the Old Testament. It's like the baptism in the New Testament. And God made him the promise of salvation, of forgiveness, and of eternal life. That is the warning, because Joash was privileged even within the covenant. And the offer was extended to him to the fullest measure. But that offer, that covenant offer, requires a response. Because there is a promise and a requirement. A promise of grace and salvation, but also a requirement to trust and obey. And that promise stood, and it was valid. But Joash's response was missing. You see, God was there, but Joash wasn't. So let us take this warning to heart and pray and plead on the basis of the promise that the Lord will give us and our children to trust and obey. Because there is no other way. God is here and now for all of us. And we know that also Joash had his promise. But then the question is, where are you and I? Do we trust that he will guide in bright spots and in dark valleys? Or do we fight our own battles like so many of the kings of Israel, Jehoram, Ahazia, and also Joash? And do we obey when steering a course through life? Or are we led by our own goals, ambitions, be they pleasure, power, recognition, popularity, acceptance, or anything else. Because our text tells us that neither scripture knowledge nor biblical teaching and neither Christian church membership nor lifelong attendance and neither baptism nor much gift aid will be sufficient. Only trusting and obeying the Lord in the big and the small decisions of life only personal acceptance of the gift of grace and a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus will finally matter. That is the warning in the story of Joash's life. But then we can also move on from this example to the place that Joash had in the history of salvation. And that is where we can find the encouragement. Because we heard God's message in the story of Joash's life and we saw the warning. But we should then also see God's encouragement in the story of Joash's life. And for that, we need to focus on the context of Joash's life. Now, the story of his life plays itself out at the time that Judah and Israel were split. About eight generations after David, 
a little while after the prophet Elijah, who was always warning Ahab, who was actually Joash's great-grandfather. But Joash also had another great-grandfather, and that was Jehoshaphat, the faithful king of Israel. He was king in, in Judah, in, in Judah. He was king in Judah while Ahab was the king in Israel. Ahab, you remember, the one of Naboth and Jezebel. Now, Jehoshaphat was a righteous king. But he made some mistakes. And these had far-reaching consequences. Because, jo- Je- because <coughs> he did not entirely and always trust the Lord and rely on him and followed him always. Jehoshaphat entered into a political alliance with Ahab for convenience sake, and he was taken to task for that by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani. You can read it in chapter 19. And unfortunately, to seal that alliance, he had his son Jehoram marry Ephalia. And not much good came out of that intermarriage. Because as we read, Jehoram murders all his brothers, better man than he, to consolidate his power. I don't think it takes much to see his wife Ephalia in the background. This is true Jezebel politics. Get rid of those who stand in the way. And later she does it again. But that attempt to secure his position fails because he dies and his sons are murdered. It's the Lord's doing, as we can read in chapter 20, verse 16, and 20, verse 18. And as a punishment, all his sons and the Phalias are killed by enemies, save Ahaziah. And then Jehoram dies on a, of a terrible disease, and there is no regret with his people. And in the meantime, Israel... In Israel, judgment is executed against Ahab's family by Jehu. And also there, there is nobody left of Ephalia's family. And maybe it was this that triggered her wild anger and her revenge on the royal city, on the royal family of David. And then, as we read, she does a most astonishing and horrible thing. Ephalia murders all Ahaziah's children, her own grandchildren, apart from Joash, whom she somehow missed. Her grandchildren she killed to eliminate every threat to her power. And then she grabs power in David's kingdom over the people of the Lord. Shocking, yes. But surprising? Or maybe not. Is this just the hunger for power of Jezebel's daughter? Or is it just the revenge of a truly bad old woman? Or is it something different? that we should look at in a wider context. Because we should note that after three rounds of murders, Joash is the only descendant of David left. And what I think we are seeing here is one of the many phases of a larger struggle starting at Genesis 3, verse 15. A struggle that goes on throughout the Old Testament and indeed throughout time. Because after his own fall, Satan tries to destroy God's creation, and he tempts Adam and Eve, and so the scene for the world's history is set. And maybe we need to pinch ourselves at times 
when the reports wash across our TV screens, making no reference to Genesis or God. But you see, Genesis is not some old story, because this, this is the battle that is really going on today. Great historians and famous philosophers, oh, they may talk about progress, regress, repetition, dialectics of history, and they can speculate about themes and purposes and causes or proclaim their total absence. But the only really relevant theme of history is set out in that text in Genesis, I will put enmity between you, that is Satan, and the woman, being God's people, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Because history is ultimately the history of our salvation. It is Christ coming into this world to save us and to crush the devil. Satan was the snake trying to strike at Christ's heel, but his head will be crushed. And in the New Testament, he still goes around as a roaring lion, but he will not prevail. You see, Satan had already has always tried to prevent the Messiah from coming. First, there was the story of Cain and Abel. And then there was the story of the sons of God and the daughters of man. And then there was the Pharaoh drowning all the boys of God's elected people. But history, the world's history, is the history of our salvation, of Christ coming to save us through Seth, through Noah's Ark, through Moses' basket. And the covenant he always maintained. After Abram, later Noah, Abram, Sinai, and David. And we hear it again and again. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of the flood. This is my covenant with you. That was one. And then Abram, all nations will be blessed through you. And with David, I will establish the throne of your house forever. That is the promise of the Messiah. And that is why in our reading, the chronicler referred to the Davidic covenant twice. So you see, if you look at the context of Joash's life, you will see another attack of Satan. But not just an attack by a bloodthirsty, power-hungry, revengeful, horrible old woman, or probably she was all that, but we should see it in a different light. It is a direct attempt from Satan. Falia is only the instrument in a vicious attempt to eliminate, to eradicate, to terminate David's house. Because if there had been no Joash, there would have been no line of David, and there would have been no Messiah. And as you saw in our text, it took three rounds of multiple murders. And if we realize that, we can take a step back and see the relevance of Joash's otherwise disappointing, miserable, and wasted life. Because his survival is not a mere incident, a twist of fate, a spot of luck, and a good roll of the dice. It is God's providence. The Lord rules the earth, and he governs history. And he squashed a failure, no Satan's attack on our salvation. 
And in Joas's wasted life, God did not lose. He won because the attack on his coming Messiah was repelled and David's line was preserved. And these attacks would continue. Think about Herod and the children of Bethlehem. But the Lord Jesus came, and all these attempts were in vain. So then, do you see also the encouragement in the story of Joash's life? Because it is the Lord who leads history to the fulfillment of his promises against all attacks of Satan. The promise of the Messiah, of our salvation, is what God here maintains. And he prevailed in the story of Joash's disappointing life. So then, as conclusion briefly and in closing. When you are reading or hearing this story from a time so long ago, and a culture so very different in a land so far away and characters today so seemingly absurd. Then remember the warning in the story of Joash's life, but also rejoice in the encouragement in the story of Joash's life. Remember God's outstretched hand because he is making us the offer of grace and the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God. And remember the warning not to refuse it, to have it offered and yet reject it, like Joash did. And remember to trust and to obey, so that we can sing, I love thee because thou hast first loved me, and purchased my pardon at Calvary's tree. I love thee for warning, for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. And then also rejoice, because God's outstretched hand is the same powerful hand that will fulfill his promise and that rules the world's history. And rejoice because his hand will never lack in strength and never fail us. No matter how dark the circumstances are or how disappointing people around us are, he is there. And rejoice because he will lead safely through life so that we can sing again in mansions of glory and endless delight. I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright, and I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Remember and rejoice. Amen. Let us pray.